Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Gemma Doyle, the former Labour MP for Western Bartonshire, a place she grew up. How rare is that? Probably more rare these days than it's ever been. Before we come on to that, don't forget you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Now, you can get in touch with a whole load of things. I've had some wonderful messages about the Anasawa episode, which I'm still not just emotionally, but physically recovering from. Um, but one of the main threads is people getting in touch with strange or unusual places or mundane places that they've seen politicians. Sam gets in touch. He says, I used to be an estate agent. Well, I'm sure we can trust every word, Sam. He says, I have a story from my time there. I had Mel Stride, current Tory MP for Central Devon, watch, walked into my office. He stopped me and said, I assume you'll be voting me. I said, not a chance. I happen to value the incredible work the NHS does. To which he said, my parents both work for the NHS and I'm a Tory. They vote for me and they trust us. I said, yeah, we've all let our parents down, mate, at some point. But that's a bit fucking extreme. Sam. I regret to inform you that I believe you crossed the line there. He said, the best part of all of this, a young lady was stood next to me, was stood behind me, looking to arrange a viewing of a property. That lady was Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> Her only line to me was, shame on you. Well, Sam, I, I'm afraid I, I think in this instance... I agree with Anne Whittacombe. I'm not sure you should have said to you should have said to Mel Stride that we've all let our parents down at some point, but that's a bit fucking extreme. Sam, it's a great story. I've noticed a bit of a trend that when people are getting in touch, the stories are now becoming times they've been rude to politicians, and I'm not massively keen on that as a as an undercurrent in these emails. But keep them coming in, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can get tickets for the live shows this coming Monday at the Vaudeville Theatre. So this one's not at the Duchess, this one is at the Vaudeville, just round the corner. If you came to the Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh night, that's where it is. It's right on the Strand. My guest, flying over from New York, is Anthony Scaramucci, Donald Trump's former White House Director of Communications. Brackets for 11 days, close brackets. But... You've heard him on this show before. He's superb. In the flesh, he is a force of nature. You can get tickets for that show at mattford.com slash live. That will be a very special night. Two weeks after that, we're back at the Duchess with the fantastic Jeremy Hunt, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State for Health, former Foreign Secretary, one of the most effective lobbyists on behalf of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. And of course, his select committee report about the government's handling of COVID has well, the best scrutiny of the government, arguably, uh, in the last year and a half. And two weeks after that, the Christmas special with MP4, Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. That will be out of this world. And then the first show of next year with former Labour leader, one of the true giants of politics in, in the entirety of British history, Neil Kinnock. On Monday the 10th of January. Tickets for all those shows at mattford.com slash live. Many more guests. I'm so close to being announced uh, to be able to announce for next year. I can't do that just yet. So on to Gemma Doyle. I've known Gemma for years. and we're a sim- Well, we are the same generation. We were working for the party around the same time. And I was delighted for her when she got elected um, to represent her hometown in 2010. Who'd have known at that point that just five years later, uh, Labour was to face almost complete wipeout in Scotland? We talk about that, about, of course, a bit around the referendum, but the changing nature in the, in, in the last few years of Scottish politics, UK politics, um, the Labour Party itself, and what an ex-MP does and how quickly you have to pivot and do something else and get over stuff and deal with it. Uh, and this is just a phenomenal lesson. And really, when you think of the speed of change in British politics since 2010, I mean, even 2010 to 2015, but 14, 15, 16 were incredible years. Uh, and of course, the whole world was impacted by COVID. So you, you can add that to the list as well. But when you think about the issues that as a body politic, we created for ourselves the debate about Scottish independence, the effect of the 2015 referendum uh, election, 
and the Brexit referendum in 2016, they are three incredibly volatile years and we are all still reeling from the effects of them. And no one really is better to talk about this than Gemma Doyle, who gets elected in 2010 thinking that the world of politics was a particular way. By the time 2015 comes round, the world politically had completely changed. I began by asking Gemma that, as well as having worked for the party at the same time, uh, I also believe that, like me, she joined the party at the age of 15, and whether that was true. I'm afraid that's true, yes. But so, I have now, I've now been in the Labour Party for, I think, 20... Is it 24 years or is it more than that? About 24 years, yeah. And um, what made you join the Labour Party so young? Um, so... So politics was always talked about in my house. My mum and dad talk about politics like all the time. They were no Labour Party activists. Um, they had they always voted Labour. Um, they were actually both kind of you know sort of shop stewards active in their in their their, their trade unions um, in a voluntary capacity. Um, and I think my dad had finally joined the party uh, in which would have been. The, I think it would have been the leadership election where where Blair won. Oh, and so, yeah, so I think he joined then, and um, or maybe just after. And so, if you if you think back to then, they would have been constantly sort of sending out membership forms to people who had you know who had kind of joined, and um, and so there's a membership form in the house, and I just thought I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this because I was I was interested. Um, and I knew, I knew I was a Labour supporter. So. And obviously we'll come on to um, Labour's former position in Scotland relative to where it is now. But were your friends at school? Were any of them into it as well? Um, I think I was definitely the most political. Um, I do remember having, you know, some conversations, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure I remember anyone else being as clear and... Um, you know, upfront that they were absolutely Labour supporters. They might have said, "Oh yeah, my parents vote Labour," and um, but I just I'm not sure many of them had thought about it in quite the same way um, as I had. So you grew up in Dumbarton, and how do the politics of Dumbarton differ, or or, or not differ, from the politics of other parts of Glasgow or Scotland, um, rather? Yeah, I mean, look, Dumbarton is very much part of that that big west of Scotland conurbation. So, a lot of the a lot of the issues, the influences uh, are are very similar. It, it's a, it's a reasonably small town though, and it's a town where, frankly, everybody is related to to everybody else, and everyone knows your face. And I mean, I used to I would go into a shop when I was at school, and the woman behind the counter would go your mother's a niece and she must be, I can tell, you know, I can tell from your face. And then, then she would proceed to guess which one of the, the niece and women my mother was type thing. So, um, so I think Dumbarton has that very, you know, everyone knows each other kind of vibe about it. Uh, but it is, it's, it's well connected to Glasgow. One of the, the benefits of the former Strathclyde region is a very good light rail network. So you can very easily be in and out of Glasgow, whether it's for you know shopping, going out, work, university, or you can be in Loch Lomond in 20 minutes as well. So it's, um, it's, it's maybe not the most glamorous town in the world, but it's, uh, it's not a bad place to grow up. But you end up being the MP for Western Bartonshire, which, you know, so few people actually end up representing a seat that's where they're from. It must have felt amazing. I did. And you're right, it was amazing. Um, it was, it was, it wasn't just a privilege to be a member of parliament, and a, a Labour member of parliament, obviously, but to represent my home town. And, you know, I stood that selection, I was 28 in that selection. And, oh you know, I was my kind of, God. I was clearly the youngest, uh, the youngest candidate, and there was six, six candidates, all really good, you know, really, um, all very different, but 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 really good with their own kind of pitches. Um, and it was, I think, when you represent your hometown, and I don't mean this to to denigrate anybody else at all, you just instinctively know what the issues are and how people will react. And, you know, because it's your friends, it's your family, it's people you, you grew up with. Um, 
I mean, I think that comes with a bit of, you know, a bit of scrutiny. You feel like you're very much in in, in the spotlight, and arguably our, our our MPs should. But no, it was um, it it was it was quite something. I don't want to come into this too soon, but obviously the, the the special feeling that goes with being elected for the place that you're from, having an instinct for it, must mean, I guess, that when you lose the seat, which is hard anyway, that must feel even more personal. It it was, and I and there were specific circumstances, of course, um, and I think the you know the circumstances around me losing my seat and all of the other Scottish Labour MPs except for Ian Murray in, in 2015 are very different from, you know, I think if you lose a marginal seat by a small number of votes, that must feel, you know, it must feel really awful because you think about, uh, oh God, if I'd just done that little thing or if I just said that or if we just knocked a few more, a few more doors. So although it felt personal I think it was more you know I sort of looked around that area that I'd known all my life and so we had one of the higher yes votes in 2014 and I'm, I'm sure your listeners kind of know the know the context um we, we'd had one of in, in Western Bartonshire we had one of the higher yes votes and I think there was a direct correlation between um you know deprivation and affluence levels and and Western Bartonshire is one of the you know more more deprived areas in in Scotland so we did a really high yes vote and in some ways that was that was the bit that was that was the start of what was difficult because I was going around the doors talking to all these people who'd voted for me in great numbers in 2010 and um, weren't necessarily agreeing with me on you know the fact that I was encouraging them to to vote no and we had I often think about I think about that 2014 campaign and I think about the 2015 campaign and the length of the discussions we used to have on the doorsteps with people because a lot of people really were they were torn about what to do. They were, they didn't know. They were looking at a Labour Party who they'd voted for the whole life and, and trusted, you know, and they knew I was from there. Um, but a lot of them wanted to go a different way from us on, on the referendum. So I guess I didn't I didn't take it personally in 2015. Um, I don't know if I should have, um, but I didn't take it personally. I knew I knew what the context was, and there, there's uh, have a there's a story from the doorstep that, that always really sticks with me. And it was um, one of my campaign team knocked the door on Poland Day in 2015. And the guy behind the door, he burst into tears and he said, please, will you tell Gemma how sorry I am? I think she's brilliant and I hope she gets reelected. But I felt I had to vote SNP today. Mm-hmm. And he, he was completely, this guy was totally genuine. But where do you go with that kind of logic? So, as I say, I didn't take it personally. I was devastated for the Scottish Labour Party. I was devastated for Scotland. Um, you know, and I was devastated we hadn't we hadn't managed to get Labour back into power. But, um, yeah. So, on the night of the 18th of September 2014, when there's a decisive vote to stay in the UK, but, yes, have done very well in your backyard, did that immediately occur to you? Did you think, well, we've kind of... We've won the war, but there are coming battles we may lose. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that became apparent really quickly. And we were, I think both individually and as a party in Scotland, we were, we were so battered and bruised at that point. And we were exa- and we were exhausted, just exhausted. I remember kind of, I think it was conference started just a couple of days after it and going down there and we were like zombies um you know basically and this this was the contradiction that we had won we had won but to be really honest the 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 party had not done the work for what happens when we won and i remember i think i remember getting on a plane from glasgow to london picking up the record and there was sturgeon was all over it you know it was and it was their narrative it was salmon's it was sturgeon it was their narrative and i almost feel like we lost 2015 in those you know 72 72 hours maybe it was longer than that um so yeah and we you know i had i had what would have been what you would describe as a safe seat 
uh, normally, and obviously a lot of our a lot of our seats in Scotland were, but we got our campaigns up and running, you know, well before Christmas, which was not the way you would normally really have done it in in safe seats, as as you know, as a former. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and we kind of set about starting the. It was I think it was largely phone canvassing because the weather was so was so horrendous, but a bit of door knocking as as well. And I think what's quite interesting is if you look at the way the numbers split in terms of the data and what people were saying about how they were going to vote, there actually wasn't then a huge shift between that sort of, you know, maybe November 2014 through to the actual final result. What we did have was this huge chunk of don't knows that we, you know, that we hadn't really seen before. And in the end, they decided they did know and they didn't go with us. Um, so, yeah, but, but the other factor in that election, of course, was there had been a huge number of people who'd come out and voted in that referendum who'd never voted in an election in their lives. And they did go out and vote in 2015, a lot of them, and they, they certainly weren't coming back out to vote Labour. Um, so, yeah. I think this, for the first time, uh, this has jogged a memory. I don't know if you remember this. I have a vague recollection of talking to you in Parliament somewhere in between the referendum and the election I think I remember you saying I think like it's gonna be really bad in Scotland in 2015 I was like even though I'd seen what happened in the referendum I was like not surprised but like I was surprised at how grave you were do you remember that or am I misremembering that I remember that as like a, oh god vaguely I mean I you know we kind of we knew there was a problem and I think we kind of start to go, oh, hang on a minute, are we in trouble here? Are we going to lose some seats? And, you know, it would go down to check, we might lose, are we going to lose 20 seats? And the, and the closer we got to, to May 2015, um, it was, it was, you know, it became apparent it was pretty serious. I think there was some of my colleagues didn't really didn't fully digest it. And I would say I was in a funny position of, being pretty wide-eyed about what was coming and what I felt was going to happen, I had one of the bigger majorities. Um, so if you did it on numbers, if it was a kind of numerical swing, I might have been one of the, the few that hung on. But, you know, we knew that demographic issue was there. And in the end, the results were far more dependent on demographics than, than pure numbers and, and pure swing. So and the majority was almost 17,500. And that was in, over 20... in 2010, overturned into a majority of over 14,000 for the SNP just five years later. I mean, these are swings that are just off the charts. Yeah. And I mean, on, on sort of, I think, unseen in Western political democracies. Um, so it was, uh, it was, it was still shocking, even though we, we could sort of see and feel what was coming. You were hoping, and I think we were hoping for, I think on polling day, I was like, we might hang on to five seats. You know, and, we might hang you, on to four seats. And, and of those four or five, did you think yours would be one of them? I thought I might be one of them. As I say, based on those numbers and targeting of, and, and because I, you know, I had a good majority um, in terms of targeting of resources, you know, I was up there. I'd had a small team, but we'd be now, you know, we were smashing it in terms of number of contacts we were making. Um, God bless my family who all, <laughs> who all came out pounding, pounding the streets. Um, so, so, you know, on any measure of why would someone do better or, or not, it, it, it looked reasonably favourable um, for, for me. But, and, and then the, the additional kind of weird factor in that was I, I was a shadow minister. Um, and I'd been in the defence team for, you know, four and a half years. So you were going all the way through from, I might lose my job, um, to, okay, I might get back in, but what's the result going to be? And is the result going to be that Labour are going to be the biggest party? And hang on, are they going to do a deal with the SNP or not? And so it was kind of everything from, I might lose my job, so I might be a, a minister. And I didn't, oh I didn't, my God! Right? And, and I didn't really think about I might be a minister very much because I'm quite good at um, not getting my own hopes up. Let's put it that way. So I was definitely further down the probably going to lose my job here. But but yeah, the the being told that that was the result was still was still quite shocking. 
I mean, these aren't easy things to deal with in the moment or, or get over even in time. But just on one of the things you said there, you know, not knowing whether Labour was going to deal, uh, do a deal with the SNP, do you think Ed Miliband would have entertained it? I think he would have explored some sort of arrangement. And I think that would have been the reality of the numbers. Even though we had told people, you know, we said we, we ruled it out, um, as far as I can remember. Um, but, but, you know, I, but I thought, you know, the reality of how these things then, then play out. So, uh, and, I, and I believe, I think I'm right in saying from, from colleagues who were in, you know, head office that night, uh, that was something they were thinking about. And how would that have made you feel? It's hard to underestimate the hatred is a strong word, but the hatred and the strength of feeling. Um, and so that would have been really, really difficult. Really. And do you feel like Labour people in England, maybe Westminster Labour, really fully gets the difference between Scottish Labour and the SNP? The difference between what Labour stands for and what the SNP stands for. I wouldn't say I wouldn't I wouldn't put it on Westminster Labour because I think most of my former colleagues and you know a lot of people that are there now re do really they get it. But I do come across party members who sort of think that the the SNP are are, are kind of you know social, socialists with a saltire on them. Socialists in a saltire. Um, that was part of what was, you know, many, many things were worrying about the Corbyn, the Corbyn team and the Corbyn project, but there were definitely people around Corbyn who saw the SNP as allies. And, you know, as, as in my entire time of being in Scottish politics, I have seen nothing socialist or progressive or that is aligned to Labour values from the SNP. I've heard a lot of rhetoric about it from them. I've never seen the delivery or the action that proves to me that that is actually, that they are political sisters and brothers of ours. They aren't. And, and, and so it is frustrating uh, when we have party members who are a bit removed from it who sort of see you know it's this progressive alliance suggestion um they're very very different people from us they're driving forces nationalism yes and corbyn's politics were very different from mainstream labor politics so it's probably not a surprise that people outside of the mainstream of labor would perhaps misunderstand what labor values are. i mean corbyn himself I think last week or the week before was saying, well, if there needs to be a second referendum in Scotland, he was always far more open about the fact that he was open to a second referendum, seemed comfortable with the idea that Scotland might leave. I mean, obviously that's consistent with his view of, you know, what, what he thinks Britain stands for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the worst things in politics is not to have a clear position i think it's, it's always important to listen to explain to be open to other arguments but the voters if, if you can't even tell the voters what your policy is how can you ask them to vote for you so i always think that they have much more respect and time for you if you say i believe this and they might not agree with it but at least you've told them and they understand what they're getting and they'll take it into consideration with you know the package of whatever else it is you said so Every single visit that Corbyn, that, that, that Jeremy and, and John McDonnell did to Scotland ended in this absolute disaster of confusion over the policy on second referendum and where we stood on. And, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was every single time. And it was so disrespectful to like, to the Scottish Labour Party members who have been through you know, who are still going out campaigning, who are going to meetings, our MSPs, you know, not to not to be able to, 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 I just thought it let them down so, so badly. Especially when, probably the Scottish independence referendum is probably the most ferocious democratic exercise we've had 
And uh, for for the people that went through that, to go through that real severe experience and then be told, actually, that thing that you put your heart and soul into, that you were destroyed online, videoed in the street, you know, all that pelted with eggs, actually, <laughs> that doesn't matter so much. And it's the leader of your party saying it. I mean, I can't imagine how that felt to, to Labour people in Scotland. Yeah. And I, I think I'm right in saying I don't remember any of our MPs kind of expressing regret post-2015 about the, the stance we'd taken. You know, so we'd, we'd all, lost all of our MPs except for Ian. And I don't, I don't think I remember anyone saying, oh, God, you know, we should have done it differently. We should have taken a different stance. Um, or like moaning or complaining. I think it was Tom Harris was the first person I heard say it was, well, if that was the price that we had to pay to keep Scotland in the UK, it was a price worth paying. And I, and I to, you know, I agree with that and, and, and I believe it. And it's been a heavy price for, you know, it's a heavy price for, for Scotland, I think, to have lost the strength of the, the Scottish Labour Party. But um, so, so not to have been able to, you know, get behind Scottish Labour Party members and work with them because having a, being clear on this is so, so important. And the Scottish Conservative Party have benefited from being, um, you know, from being really clear on, on their stance on the union. And obviously you go through that um, range of emotions on the day. Am I going to get fired? Could I be a minister? But I guess you've gone through that in a more protracted way since the day you got elected in 2010. You, you come into a safe seat. Labour have just lost an election, but not by much. They were in with, you know, the potential to win a general election in 2015. David Miliband might have become the leader. Things might have been different. You were seen, obviously, I remember when you worked for the Labour Party, you were seen as a high flyer, an impressive individual. This is someone who had a bright future, whatever you were going to do. Um, so in the mind, you might have been thinking, well, you know, Labour might get back in at the next election. Who knows where my life might lead me and what contribution I might be able to make to the party and to the country and all the rest of it. And then and in five years, the whole thing, and Labour haven't been back in government since. I mean... It's been, I think it's been insane for anyone close to politics, but your experience, in a way, sums up what happened to Labour so quickly. Yeah, and I, and I so, so, so I joined the party, I think my membership came through in March or April 97. So that was my first election as a Labour Party member. And we had that period from then on of winning, of you know, of absolute, of joy, of being able, of being able to do things, you know, for 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 the people in in our communities, but across the UK and completely, you know, the UK was in such need of total overhauling of public services and all that stuff, you know, which the Labour government did, and and were absolutely brilliant at. I remember, I think it was was it the two thousand and three Scottish Parliament election where we lost like a couple of Labour MSPs. And I, and I remember being like really devastated, like feeling terrible about it. And there was a couple of, um, it was a, a, a member in Mary Hill, because um, I think I was I was working for the, the MSP there in my spare time while I was at uni at that point. And she sort of, I remember her kind of going, Gemma, you can't be sad about this. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, she'd been a member before I had. And she said, you can't be sad about this. Like, that was a win and these things happen. Like, you have to take the, the victories um, when they come. And I remember thinking, okay, fine. L- little did I know um, how, how much worse was <laughs> how much worse was to come. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
because there's, there are a lot of theories about what happened in Scotland. And obviously the, the referendum is the single biggest thing because that's the point at which afterwards everything is effectively defined by it. But people talk about Scottish Labour becoming complacent. You look at the collapse of the so-called Red Wall in England. Labour's relationship with its heartlands has changed and it was changing before Corbyn. So were there other issues, you think, within Scottish Labour, with the Labour Party at a UK level, that also contributed to the ground opening up underneath it in 2015? Um, I think I used to get quite annoyed at people saying Scottish Labour had been complacent as though that was something unique to us. Yeah. You know, I think we had um, I think we had MPs and safe seats across the country and this isn't true for all MPs and all safe seats at all but you know there, there were there were people who you know where we had we'd never had any there was no data you know people didn't go out and campaign and they may have been great MPs doing you know good constituency constituency work but I guess the legacy of 97 was we had or the the, the run-up to 97 and, and the win was we we had seats which were campaigning seats and other seats which had just kind of fallen by fallen by the wayside a bit so I think that's been I think that's been an issue um across the board uh do I think there were other issues in 2015 specifically we again I'm, I'm this is I won't say who it is but I, I read a blog um a few years ago which crystallized this really well for me and the, and it was about um you know, someone taking a small step to the left and then the next person that comes in feeling they can take just another step to the left of that and that you just kind of keep. And I think in 2015, we were part of the way on that journey. Mm. Um, you know, and Ed, Ed Miliband's worked, worked his socks off and, and did everything he could. But I think even at that point, we were starting not to quite connect and get it right on some of the issues that the voters cared about. I think this is really difficult because there is always, or sometimes, not always, there is, there is a bit of a contrast between what we as politically active, committed people who have decided to spend our time campaigning for things believe in versus what the ordinary, nobody's ordinary, but but you know what, what the voters um, in the street think and the people that live next to us because we just have a slightly different, um, you know, take on take on things, and um, I worry. I think Keir to, to jump right up to now. Um, I think Keir is doing a good job of reconnecting us with, um, in terms of speaking to what the voters want to, to hear about. I think there's a job to to go and spreading that out across the party, and making us realise. That we can't obsess about our own hobby horses. We have to. We have to be addressing um, the issues that that people want us to talk about. So, before you were an MP, you worked for the party for many years. Obviously, you, as you described, you volunteered for MPs and things. What was your first job actually working for the party? So, my the only job I ever did directly for the party was the PLP political office, which was like the last two years of us being in government. So that again, that was that. That was a huge privilege. We, used, you know, I used to go to the weekly PLP meetings. We were the only people who always went, apart from Labour MPs and Labour peers. Um, so I did that. My first ever political job was working with uh, Jim Murphy in the run-up to the two thousand and one um, election, where he tripled his majority. There you go, <laughs> from ninety-seven. So. Um, yeah, I used to, um, I think I spent quite a lot of time with a risograph that year. Uh, <laughs> and doing, I, I, I did quite a lot of, um, I mean, I, you know, did a lot of casework and things like that before I was ever elected as well. But um, yeah, it was working with Jim Murphy. What was he like to work for? I mean, he was so busy that you'd barely see him, to be honest. You know, he would be down in, um, he would be down in uh, Parliament in the week. I think I used to go out on a Wednesday. Um, Wednesday for a bit and I mean I mean Jim is a whirlwind of activity uh, as as you and I think he's very good at working out how much time do I need to spend on this to get it done um, 
and then moving on to the next thing. And he's, al- he's always been really good at building a team round about him who can go and get things done. Um, but he was brilliant to work for. You know, he was, um, he's, uh, d- despite the caricatures of 2014 and 2015, he's, you know, he's a, a, a great guy, fun, fun to be around, um, isn't actually you know although we're all we're kind of working politics he's got a he's got a life outside of of politics and he's um he's a good guy to talk to but I I learned I learned a lot from Jim probably more when I worked with him uh, in the shadow defense team um when he was the, the shadow defense uh, secretary um yeah I was really surprised at how he became the target of 2014 I mean I guess there's a logic to it they couldn't treat Alistair Darling like that but I was shocked at how much the caricature stuck. That occasionally I would still meet people who really don't like him. I think yeah. he's one of the most likable people I've ever met. He's so reasonable. <laughs> he's softly spoken. He's thoughtful. He's funny. It's so odd that they were able to, you know, make a demon out of such a nice bloke. It was. It was just so polarized and so divisive. It was you're on that side, you're on my side, or you're on the other side. And if you're on the other side, you're wrong and I hate you. And he was, you know, after years of, I mean, he was of, of, of building a career at Westminster and being a really serious person for us. And, you know, people talk about Scotland's voice on the world stage. Well, you know, Jim, Jim did that in his role as EU minister when we were in government. Um, and he said, actually, my, my party's in my party's in trouble. My party's in real trouble. I'm gonna go and and lead the Scottish Labour Party. So I think that was a I think that was a brave decision, although Jim more than most probably saw what was what was coming. He's a smart political operator. Um and uh, you know, he, he said we have to we have to get out there and talk to people and try and I think I think I guess some of the theory and the strategy was to draw the sting. Of that hatred that I was talking about, so that was the you know that was the Iron Brew Crate tour, I guess. And yeah. you know we we had him. He came to Claybank, and we stood in the middle of Claybank Shopping Centre. And um, I took, I remember someone coming and holding up a bit of paper that they'd written on, calling him something that I don't even want to repeat just now, but is you know was horrifically libelous and not something that he has at all. And me having to kind of go and remove this horrible allegation from beside Jim's face which someone had just you know so it was it felt like street warfare you know it really it really did. So when you first started working for the PLP down in London when you joined the party at 15 did you ever think oh I I might like to work in it or I might go down to Westminster I might become a member of parliament was it just an each one little thing led you to the next thing? That's exactly it that's exactly um, correct and I've I might sound really weird for someone that ended up getting elected. I've never had a plan <laughs> in my life. I've Not never even a five-year one. No, I mean you're lucky if I if I go to the pub and I've got a plan for what the rest of the night out's going to be. <laughs> to be fair, it's usually karaoke, so I usually do have a plan for that. Um, but I never, I never had a plan. I sort of rolled from you know one one thing to the next. I was, I, I was. Uh, it was a time where there were lots of jobs for people in, in the Labour Party. I feel really <laughs> sorry. But, you know, yeah. Particularly our young people in Scotland now who probably, you know, want to work in politics and just aren't aren't enough um, jobs for them. So, yeah, just kind of rolled from, from one thing to the next. And I was, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, people who want to be MPs and, and all the rest of it. I I went, you know, I, I went out campaigning. I did what I did. Um when I was at uni, I worked, you know, I worked as a as a cleaner and I did that kind of stuff before before somebody said, Oh, you know, you could go and do do this instead of instead of that. And it really was one one thing led to another. So that you worked for Jim, but then you come down to Westminster and, and work in the in the PLP. Was that a big culture shock from doing that sort of politics to doing that sort of politics? Um, I mean, there's a wee bit in between. So I'd worked for I worked for a few MSPs um, as well, and I had a couple of jobs outside politics before I came down to down to Westminster. Um, it was, it, I, I think the question. Excuse me for asking your questions. I guess the question might be more when I got elected. 
<laughs> okay, fine. If that's what you're doing. You know, when, when I got elected, was was that a culture shock and was that? And actually, no, because I'd been in the party for so long. And I'd, you know, I, in my late teens, I went, I got elected onto the Scottish Executive Committee and the National Policy Forum and, and the Scottish Policy Forum and all these wonderful bodies, right? So, so you're around, you're around, you know, the, the Scottish Trade Union General Secretaries, you would, there would be, I don't know, it's maybe 25 people in the Scottish Executive Committee and they would be there and you would be there and Jack McConnell would come and, you know, you, you're sitting raising members issues and all this kind of thing. So, it wasn't, it, it were, I, I kind of knew how things worked um, a little bit. And I'd been, you know, I did a lot of, when I was at uni, I did, I did labour students, I did student politics. I wasn't a sabbatical or anything myself, but you end up with this huge network of, of people who, who are all kind of working through doing different things in, in politics. So there's a couple of times I felt out of place and it's almost like a brain kind of freeze. We go, what the hell am I doing here? But but I would say that was kind of quite a kind of built up over over time and wasn't too much of a shock. Did you enjoy student politics? Oh, great fun. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because so many people go, oh, it was terrible. I mean, I never got involved in it. I just thought, in a way, I was too intimidated by it. Um, but I think a lot of people who are involved in it now go, oh, yeah, I didn't really like it. I was like, well, some people must have liked it because everyone was doing it. It was great fun. We used to go, you know, we'd go away all these various weekends, um, you know, political councils and conferences and go to by-elections and all the rest of it. And you're going with a bunch of people who all, you know, you kind of think the same things and you do the campaign and you sit and you might talk about, about policy or whatever. And again, we were in government, so government ministers were coming to talk to us about and take our questions and, you know to an extent you had some influence maybe not very much and then you'd all go to the pub and get pissed and meet lots of other people from across the country and you know it was it was great fun it was definitely better than sitting in a lecture hall um all week I would say I managed to kind of roll out the other end of uni with a degree rather than uh, you know anything else but um I loved it but then once you've got elected Obviously, you'd worked in the PLP, and the PLP has beautiful offices just off Westminster Hall in the cloisters where Charles I's death warrant was signed, or so the rumour goes. That beautiful corridor-style office that, that the PLP has. So you were used to the building. It wasn't like all of a sudden from the west coast of Scotland you're plonked in the Palace of Westminster and, and people find that intimidating. So in a way, that must have been an advantage, not being intimidated by the place. Definitely, and... So I turned 29 in the election campaign. So I was 29 when I when I went in, went out into Parliament. Um, and I always think there are there are so many bits and skills to the job, the full job that a politician does. And I think pretty much nobody has the full kind of you know skill set that makes them that makes the perfect politician. So I often think having apart a from Tony Blair. Apart from Tony Blair, you're right. Um, <laughs> uh, you were getting there, of course. You almost had it. No, no, I could tell you what he. I tell you what he messed up on. Go on. He didn't. He didn't plan his succession. That is absolutely true. Right. I've gone right it. off him. <laughs> so, so you and and I, and I think if you have that self-awareness of what you are and aren't good at as a politician, this is true in every job and every walk of life as well, you're kind of halfway there to being able to, to do it well. But I, so I was 29, there were, that was the expenses election. So there was a big turnover. The, eight, the average age on the labour benches in particular dropped for the, it was the first election it had, it had actually come down since 97, I think. And there were a bunch of us either side of 30. So, so I often people kind of go, oh my God, you either at the time, but you're so young or you were so young. And I just kind of go, but I'd been in the, I had over a decade at that point of working in, either working in politics or doing it in a kind of member voluntary type capacity. Um, so I was familiar with, so campaigning, not a problem, knew, you know, knew, knew what I was doing. Um, constituency work, const I'd worked in about, three or four constituency offices. So I'd done casework. I knew I knew how that was meant to go. I knew how the party internally worked or didn't or didn't <laughs> part of the time. Um, 
as you say, I'd been in the PLP office. So as well as that, I had that Scottish Labour Party network. I had that big network from being in student politics. And actually, I'd been working with these MPs, the ones who stood again and got re-elected for the previous two years. And they were, you know, they were so nice. And it's so great that, that you've got elected. The, the bit, tell you the, the couple of bits that were intimidating and scary to me, the chamber, which sounds crazy because it's obviously the first thing people think about that MPs do. I almost kind of went, oh, bloody hell, I forgot about this bit. I forgot <laughs> I have to do this. And um, I hadn't been, you know, I wasn't a lawyer. I wasn't a, I hadn't been a counsellor before. I'm very comfortable writing a speech and getting up delivering it. But that did a bit of drama when I was younger, which um, which I think helps. Um, but, but that off-the-cuff kind of aspect was terrifying, was terrifying to me, really scary. Um, and, and I think the, well, and the, the other bit was being on a select committee. And I think that's the bit we, we should be supporting new MPs with a lot more. So when I was made a shadow minister, that was way less scary because you go and meet people, they want to talk to you, you listen to them, sit on a select committee, you're meant to be forensically um, analysing and interrogating people in front of you. And you're going, oh my God, you know, <laughs> like, A, do I know anything about this? Um, B, the, the chief executive of BP or whatever is sat in front of me, sat in front of 29-year-old me. Um, so that, so that, that was scary as well. But um, I got there, I think. <laughs> So there's, there's obviously in the House of Commons, even that has different levels. There's, there's been a backbencher. There's been a shadow minister at the dispatch box. Yeah. Which of those was more terrifying? Or is it just equal? So the first couple of times you speak from the backbenches is scary because partly, so for me, partly because you nothing, you've got nothing to put your paperwork on. Yes. <laughs> so you've you've written this lovely speech, and um, I used to. It's not something. That happens to me anymore. I used to, when I was nervous, even if in my sort of in my brain I wasn't nervous, I would physically shake. Yes. So I remember doing it a couple of times, speaking at Labour Party conferences when I was younger. So you had this speech which you've written and it's brilliant, and you get up and you're going like you're going like this, you're shaking, and you have to go through the paperwork type thing. <laughs> so so that was really hard the first couple of times. First couple of times I did it, um, but it does get easier. And then you and then you're kind of turning around to take interventions from it was always Pete Wishart sort of screaming from the screaming from the the other side uh, or across the chamber. Um, the first once or twice I spoke at the dispatch box, so slightly easier physically because you've got this thing in front of you you can hold on to and put your paperwork on. Yes. Um, but I was so scared about interventions, and I remember my my member of staff Graham that worked for me at the time. I said, you have to write down everything you think anyone might intervene on me with. And we have to go through everything I should po could possibly say in response. And of course, in reality, you're doing it. You've got the rest of your team sat beside you. They know it's the first time you've done it. And as this, whoever it is across the chambers, having a pop at you, sometimes asking a perfectly reasonable question, they're mumbling answers behind you. So either you've got it or actually you just repeat what they've said to you. And it was, <laughs> and it was, and it was fine. But um, I mean, you get a real rush of adrenaline sometimes at the dispatch box, um, which was one of the things that was hard when I stopped being an MP, actually. You know, if you're winding up a debate at half past 10, 11 o'clock at night and you're going full guns gusto and it's all, you know, the adrenaline's really kind of pumping. And then, um, I stopped being an MP, I was like, oh, what am I, where do I get that now? You know, where do you, how do you replace that? Um, and have you replaced it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, I, I, I guess I, I never have to perform in quite the same way these days. Um, but certainly um, my current job is interesting varied really challenging you know from from one week to the next I'm doing things that going and talking to, to various people about um about various things so I so I get yeah I get I get a bit of that um bit of that from from that maybe less so from from chairing my local constituency party but uh, <laughs> it depends how many of the momentums have turned up would you get a kind of rush of adrenaline at like the same time the week after, even though you weren't there? Was there a kind of uh, Pavlovian 
Now, half ten on a Wednesday evening, would you find yourself getting almost pre-gig nerves, even though there was no gig? Um, no, but I was lucky enough when I left Parliament, I did some work with a few organisations who um, sort of work in young or emerging democracies. And those are in the slightly, tend to be in the slightly tastier bits of, of the the globe so um i mean i, I went out to, to kind of basra to talk to, to to do some work on um decentralization la Makazia, if you're if you're in iraq um and i was really lucky enough to get to go to some really interesting parts of the world and, and do a bit of that work and i guess in some respects that was a, a nice kind of glide path out of having done lots of interesting and exciting things in parliament and um and still getting to do some interesting things when i when i left parliament for a while so just so that people know what you do now you're you're managing director of fti consulting so does that of the whole not of the whole of um of the company (laughs) of the public affairs the strategic communications bit uh, well, no, no, not of. There are a number of us who have um, the same job title. But that involves. I'm just trying to think of the things that still provide things that are similar to being a member of parliament. In that you're still involved in <laughs> policy, you're still giving speeches, you're still trying to shape the world in some way. So I guess maybe the most the most kind of similar read across is um, is uh, pitching for new new business. So, um, you know, I meet lots of fantastic companies and organisations and um, have to try and convince them why, uh, why we're the right people for them to, to work with, to, to help them understand what is happening in politics um, and public policy. And, uh, you know, so you do the kind of, you do the pitch and then you find out if you've, uh, if you've won or not, which, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of adrenaline uh, goes on with that. You've obviously continued to be successful after politics, but when you lose your seat, do you think, oh, God, I'm unemployed. What am I going to do now? Yeah. Um, So I was immediately after I lost my seat, I I spent, I think I spent a, you know, a day feeling sorry for myself personally, but I was, I was devastated for what happened to our party. I really was. Um, But... I would say I'm a pretty resilient person. So kind of went, it is what it is and you can't do anything about it. So what comes next? And what was difficult was I applied for a lot of jobs and didn't, I mean, did not get an interview, did not get a sniff at it. Um, I can't believe the SNP didn't want to employ you. And I, I kind of, in retrospect, I wish I'd known, you know, you just kind of wish you'd known actually it is going to be a year or whatever, you know, whatever it was type thing. Yeah. Um, and that that was difficult because you start to go, hang on a minute, I, you know, I want, I want to do something. Um, and I understand that. I think people just kind of go, but what we don't, you know, what's the MPs don't know how to turn the computers on. They're up themselves. They've got big egos. She's not going to come in here and do a proper job. And I was, wait, was I? Something like that. Yep, going, no, I need a new career. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm prepared to work, you know, I'm a a hard worker. Um, So that was was difficult. Um, But as I said, I did a couple, I I started to kind of build a few bits and pieces, did a few interesting things, uh, worked on Owen Smith's uh, leadership campaign. In gosh, what are we on now? Was that 2016? 2016, yeah. Um, and uh, and was then offered a, a similar a, a job, which is like what I do now, but with a different company, which was the maternity cover. Um, and then came to the company I'm at now. So it wasn't, it, you know, it it wasn't easy in that first year or so afterwards. And I know a lot of colleagues had a similar experience, um, and that was hard. And then after that, so Labour lose in 2015, you lose your seat in the middle of all this constitutional stuff in Scotland. Jeremy Corbyn then becomes leader of the Labour Party. So you've been through all these things. Then that happens. The Labour Party then gets itself into a situation where you've been getting all this stick for being 
Labour or no, now you're probably getting stick for being a red Tory. You know, a lot of the similar things that were levelled by uh, opponents in the uh, Scottish independence referendum then became the sorts of phrases that um, Corbyn supporters were using against the same people, getting called a red Tory and a traitor and all stuff like this. That culture then it, it comes into the Labour Party. I mean, there must have been a period where you just thought, in 2010, you would never have foreseen that culture taking over mainstream British politics. And you found yourself in the middle of it all. Yeah. <laughs> and I, well, I guess, I guess I kind of, in some ways, I almost chose to stay in the middle of it all because, as I say, I now I chair my local constituency party in, in London and I'm involved in, you know, in various ways and I, I could have just kind of gone I'm done thanks very much and and walked away from it I um yeah I mean I'll, I'll be honest I was horrified at the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party and I remember I think being with I remember going to the meeting where I go to the actual meeting or meeting up afterwards anyway with um you know kind of it was largely party staff I think it was and the shock, it was just shock. I mean, it was complete. And I think disbelief a bit as well. You know, there was still a bit of, is this real? Um, and the reason, I guess, that I, would I have still stayed as involved as I am now? It was, it's been so important to me that we got this party back to something that the voters, that the people in this country can trust in and that voters can look at us and say that is a credible, serious party and that we as party members are not embarrassed. Um, so it was, so, so I was, you know, we, we had to get our party back. And I have, um, you know, I don't, I don't have any issue with people that left or, or walked away. I understand that, but I felt that um, I felt that I had to do what I could do, my bet to 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 get it back, as it were. I guess Owen Smith's camp working on going to work on Owen's campaign was part of that, but it's more been about you know um, making sure that my Labour MP wasn't deselected, and he was targeted for deselection by Jeremy's office. Um, so, yeah. Obviously, people left at various stages. I left the day, became leader. Other people hung on for a bit longer. <laughs> After Owen Smith lost, I mean, even at that point, did you think, actually, I can't stay in this party? Were you ever tempted to go? No, because I just, um, and I understand, it's, you know, it's, it's nobody's party in a way, right? But I just refused to accept that that was our fate. Um, and... <sighs> I couldn't see, if we all went I just couldn't see the path back um and the day the, I remember the day oh god I can't remember what name they launched with now was it the end was it change or was it the independent group whatever oh yes whatever they, yes the independent I, group at first yeah my heart went my heart absolutely went through the floor because I thought shit I thought if 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 our sensible people go now if this is attractive enough for them to go ah I'm going with that. I thought we've got no chance. We've got absolutely no chance. Like we're we're done for. And in the end, actually, not very many people did go. Um, and and we did manage to turn it around. What if all the sensible people had gone? Would you have gone with them if it looked electorally viable? Possibly. Possibly. I mean, I guess that's um, the ultimate thing. If it was about to win an election, <laughs> this new yeah, progressive... I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, right, OK, put it like that. Obviously yeah, not. I mean, I, I guess it's a bit chicken and egg. How do you get to the critical mass of yeah. having enough people, right? Um, but for me, the most viable way back was still within the party. And I think, you know, that was a point at which I was looking at the Scottish Labour Party. You know, people would go, oh, my God. Is there a way back for the Scottish Labour Party? And I was looking at the party nationally. And actually, I had more hope for the party nationally because I knew we had, you know, you looked at the the, the group of MP, Labour MPs, and I went, but there's lots of there's lots of really good people there. And we had, you know, plenty of really good members who were still working and fighting and pushing for it. 
I was kind of looking at the Scottish Labour Party going, I'm not quite sure who, where that fight back is, is coming from. And I mean, that is no, no harm or disrespect to any of those people, but it was hard to see where the critical mass, you know, to turn around, um, to turn around the Scottish situation was. So perhaps that's why I had a bit more hope because I was looking at something that I thought was even more hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> so when you think about Labour now, obviously you're still deeply involved. Would you stand for Parliament again? Um, I think that's highly unlikely. Um, I wouldn't like, and this does sound like a politician's answer, but it's the absolute truth. Um, I, I am not looking to get re-elected re um, or to stand for selection. I didn't apply for the Future Candidates Programme. Um, I'm not, you know, that's that's really not in my plan or my agenda. I just wouldn't totally rule it out because who knows, you know, what, what happens in, in the future. And, um, I'm, well, I'm the grand old age of 40 now. So, uh, I, you know, I've got, I've got a while a while left. Um, but it's it's not it's not something I'm looking to do at all. I feel I feel really lucky that I did it. I feel super super. I don't know what the word is if it's honoured or something else that I did it for my hometown. Um, but I did it, and I actually really enjoy what I do now. And um, I get enough of a I get my I get my political buzz from from what I do locally and and all the rest of it. So. Do you ever look at the results in Western Martinshire in each election and think, oh, tide seems to be turning? Or, oh, God, tide's still no. going out. <laughs> no, and, you know, and I've got no no sort of intentions of, um, of, of standing in, in Scotland again. Um, so I, I, I hope for, you know, for... for that area and for my friends and family that are there and for the for Jackie Bailey who was my Jackie and I had a constituency office together um I'd love to see it go Labour again but it, it won't be with me as a candidate. Gemma this has been an absolute treat thank you so much. Well there you go Gemma Doyle so much to enjoy in that interview and and just such fantastic honesty and the bit I really enjoyed the most was about why she stayed in the Labour Party during the Corbyn years. Now, many people left in that time, and uh, many people haven't been back. Many people will never go back. But I think that is the most compelling case I've heard for why people should have stayed. Now, it wasn't for everybody. It wasn't for me. Um, but that's the first time I've heard it put quite so movingly and um, obviously you have to kind of conclude that in the end Gemma was right because if, if everyone had have left uh, really the Labour Party would have stood no chance of coming back um, to uh, even anywhere near a, a, a winning position or, or a position that was more in tune with the British public so uh, Gemma is still in there fighting the good fight and I can't remember if we were talking about it on this show, um, or I, I think I was interviewed for something else, and it's really made me think about this, and I'd never really thought about this before. I think the thing that I really respect about politicians that I think the rest of us don't have is the stamina. And I don't think I have it. But Gemma has it. And there are certain people you talk to, in fact, I just think anyone who manages to even get to the floor of the House of Commons as an elected member of Parliament, you think you have to have such inner strength to keep going through failed selections, through election defeats, whether it's for you or for your party. You, that inner strength that drives them, I think very few of us have. Even those of us that have been politically active, even those of us that have worked in politics, there is something about those people that go in at that level, elections, where your name is on the ballot paper, where you have to stand up in a school hall and treat triumph and disaster uh, just the same. That is a lot to deal with. And these people deal with it so well. And to go through all that, all those things Gemma's been through, and still care so much about the future of the Labour Party that you're, <laughs> that you're helping run the local constituency party, every day engaged in trying to keep the Labour Party together, I think that stammer and that relentlessness, I think, well, I think I don't have it. <laughs> and I think even a lot of you listening that are involved in politics will think, 
oh man, I'd rather I'd rather be at the cinema, or I'd rather just be watching Cobra, Cyber War, or Succession, or you know all the other great telly that's out there, or indeed listening to fantastic podcasts like the Political Party. And if you do like the podcast, please tell everyone about it, spread the word, leave a review. That's the most important thing you can do. That genuinely affects the algorithm that decides. Uh, how much you know? How well po- uh, po- podcasts do in the charts? So if you leave a five star review and write something nice, that helps it so much. Um, so thank you for you all about to do that uh, in advance of you doing that. And of course, another way you can support the show is to come and see it live in its new West End home. And on Monday, the twenty second of November, at the Vaudeville Theatre, it's me and an incredible man, Anthony Scaramucci. Two weeks after, it's me and Jeremy Hunt. Two weeks after, it's me with MP4, Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And the first show of 2022 will be Neil Kinnock. Now, what an array of uh, so many different political top-level talents. Thank you so much for downloading the show. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.